You love technology, you love privacy, and you cherish freedom in the Constitution. This is our culture and way of life, and it's under attack from powers that be who want to know all that we do while we know little of what they do. Restore the Fourth is an organization seeking to restore that balance, and we need your help. Please head to RestoreTheFourth.com slash donate to help support our work. That's RestoreTheNumber4TH.com slash donate. Thank you for your support. Your government doesn't feel you can be trusted with a powerful weapon, your thoughts. Encryption is a munition, and in the battle to keep your thoughts your own, it's your right to have military grade. This is Privacy Patriots, episode number 7, recorded June 17th, 2017. The Patriots and its active members have received no legal instruments requiring us to turn over any information since our last podcast, dated April 24th, 2017. My name is Chuck. And I'm Fong. Welcome to the Privacy Patriots Podcast, the official podcast of Restore the Fourth. So we're actually coming to you today from the Albany Capital Center in Albany, New York, upstate New York, at the site of the very first AnyCon, the first of its kind in the Capital District, uh, a hacker convention, if you will, uh, or a InfoSec conference, if you will. Whatever you want to call it, really. Yeah. And we kind of got into that discussion during our talk here. We had a panel talk uh, about our community and what kind of influence we have on society and politics. But uh, one of my questions is, what is our community? And, you know, once upon a time, I think the the word hacker uh, described it well, but I think that a lot of people are coming into our fold, including, you know, software developers, uh, fanboys, for lack of a better oh, term. Oh, yeah, but, definitely. But also traditional activists and journalists and even old school librarians, I think, are kind of in our camp now. I think it's it, it kind of encompasses anybody that has to do any sort of improvisation to do the things that they do. And realistically, you know, if, when you stop and think about it, anything you do involves a certain degree of improvisation. Mm-hmm. And later on, you know, one of uh, one of the fellow speakers here that we got to chat with, uh, he kind of characterized that, you know, on some argument, their hacker does describe it because the word hacker could really uh, expand to mean so many different things that, you know, although the rest of the world may some often consider hacker a dirty word, mm. you know, these... I think since about the 80s or so, it sort of yeah. became pejorative, which just is unfortunate. A, just a bunch of pains in the asses, a bunch of tricksters and stuff, yeah. but... Uh, we're much more than that now. I, I argued in my talk that we're really the drivers of the direction of society these days because, uh, you know, we see uh, governments and so many other 
uh, pre-existing establishments are kind of re- responding to what we do, whether we're developing new software that just opens up communications or protects people's rights. It's like they, they transcribed it wrong in the days of old. It is the geek who shall inherit the earth. That's true. <laughs> I like that. I'm going to quote that. Um, but, you know, this is where we are here down at AnyCon. We're just kind of at ground zero for this culture and this community. Uh, we have... You know, they have a great maker's village upstairs where, pe- stairs where people are, you know, hardware hacking and just tinkering. And uh, a lot of good speakers kind of speaking about everything from, uh, you know, the, just the highly technical of, you know, protecting or, and or hacking into systems uh, all the way up to education, um, law as it applies to technology and of course our part you know public policy and politics and how it intertwines with technology so speaking of uh law law legislation public policy and how it uh intersects with the hacker community we've got so many things going on this week in that arena it's hard for me to keep track um a number of news items. For one, uh, the 702 sunset and then now a potential renewal. Um, you may be familiar with what's called Section 702, which is uh, it's a section of the FISA Amendments Act. This is legalese, but basically that's what allowed the NSA to siphon off huge amounts of data from the Internet's backbone. Um, but that's also what allows end runs around the Fourth Amendment, basically, or around uh, we're supposed to have provisions that protect us as American citizens, that we're not supposed to be under the purview of this kind of mass surveillance. So um, it's supposed to, this kind of surveillance that the NSA does is supposed to target only foreign, foreign nationals. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, the trick is this kind of gave them a, a, a what we'll call a backdoor search loophole. And it, you could at least pull from the troves of data where you had communications between an American citizen and a foreign national. But they would access this these kind of commu- communications even when what was of interest was what the what the American citizen was saying. So, like, they're the real target, but they're kind of cheating a bit, if you will. So This is a loophole, yeah. This provision was set to end at the end of this year, or is the phrase they like to use, it was... Sunset. Due due to sunset, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, uh, just this week, Senator Tom Cotton of uh, Arkansas came out and proposed that 702 should not only be renewed but made permanent that you know of course making the typical fear-mongering arguments that were tying the hands of law enforcement and such um so we're with with that here at restore the fourth we're actually making a call to action you know with this is up to the senate intelligence committee members of which cotton is one of uh, but we're urging people to call 
those specific representatives, and we're we have a link on our site uh, to a list from Restore the Fourth of who those members are and their contact info. Um, so yeah, we should probably remind people what the site is in case they're listening to this on a mobile device and not really uh, not really plugged into just a sure. second. Yeah, head over to privacypatriots.org.org, and uh, this episode's description will have a link uh, to that list from Restore the Fourth. So, you know, a lot of times we're urging people to call their own reps and ask them to support or not support something. This is just one of those cases where we want to give them a verbal lashing. You know, you shouldn't be doing this. Let's let, as we've been saying, just take in the sunset. (laughs) (laughs) Let's move on from this scandal, which is really what Let's move on from this mistake. Yes. Let's 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 put the era of error behind us. Yeah, let's not keep perpetuating uh, this mass surveillance of our own people. Um, another uh, upcoming case is uh, the Carpenter case, and this is going to decide whether the government needs a warrant to access a person's cell phone location history. Now, this and, one's actually kind of interesting from a technical perspective because one of mm-hmm. the things that I think many people do not realize is that cell phones are actually extremely short range. So the reason they have to put cell towers all over the place is because of the fact that the phones themselves don't actually reach very far. They only have to then reach to the nearest tower. And in order for the cell phone network to actually be able to deliver your calls to you, it has to know which tower to send it out of, which means that the cell phone network... Even without bothering with GPS, the cell phone network knows where your phone is. Yeah, it's just a matter of you you have a course location just inherent to what tower is your phone connected to at a given time. And And this is necessary for the network to function. That's the thing I want to underscore. This This is not anything nefarious, but it can be used for nefarious purposes. Yeah. So... The ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, is actually representing this gentleman, Timothy Carpenter, in this case, Carpenter versus United States, uh, where the he was uh, accused of a robbery case in Detroit, and the government at- obtained months of location data on him and, and presented that as evidence, 127 days worth, uh, to be exact, which revealed over 12,000 separate points of location data. Um, they went and appealed to the Sixth Circuit Court uh, Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. They got a ruling there two to one that no a warrant is not required under the Fourth, Ameri- uh, Fourth Amendment, but uh, they're taking it to 11 and bringing it to the Supreme Court now. So uh, it'll be interesting, and uh, from, from what I hear about our from some fellow uh, RT4 folks. Uh, We're hopefully going to be presenting an amicus brief in this case. Uh, But we see it as an opportunity to, uh, you know, this case could be a reexamination of the third-party doctrine, for one. You're familiar with that, right? Yeah, I think so. And actually, uh, if you are not familiar, as to our listeners, if you're not familiar with the third-party doctrine, 
we'd have you zip back through some of the history of this podcast and listen. And we've had a we had a nice discussion with that. Was that Rashida that was we were we were discussing that with? Yeah, because, mm-hmm. and we'll get to this shortly. Uh, a bill that we're working on here in New York, uh, hopefully, will rein in the third party doctrine as well, which is kind of a legal basis whereby. Some argue that you are entitled to less privacy when a third party is handling or storing your data, you know, outside of your home, I guess. So um, moving on with the list, uh, on the West Coast, we got a lot going on as well. Um, There's a new bill uh, up at the state level in California, SB 21, and, uh, you know, this was similar to a municipal ordinance that was still in play at, in Oakland. Uh, but basically what it would do, it would require that police departments, before they could acquire or use new surveillance technology, they would have to get approval in advance from an elected board, uh, from a government body during uh, a some sort of public hearing and when they obtain approval uh, they also have to present a, a policy that's going to uh, it's going to offer privacy safeguards and then beyond that uh, they would have to return every two years to uh, report on the technology they're using including the total cost of the technology, the number of times it was used, how effective it was, uh, as well as instances where the technology was either shared with another agency and even instances where the technology was used in violation of the department policy. So this is kind of really putting to paper some real accountability and transparency on law enforcement surveillance for once. And, you know, hopefully, just like here in New York, uh, California is kind of one of those inspirational states where when laws pass here or there first, it kind of sets the tone for what uh, could hopefully happen in the rest of the country. Um, So the other thing it would do, it would allow individuals to sue an agency if they've been harmed, if they could show actual harm uh, from a violation of the legislation in regards to whatever surveillance gear. Uh, as of right now, they, you know, there's not even the transparency necessarily to even know if you were affected, no less harms. So... What's interesting over on the East Coast here, we have on a municipal level in New York City a very similar bill. Uh, You know, it's not hard to fathom that New York, when it comes to police departments, (laughs) New York City is probably uh, one that has one of the more robust surveillance operations of them all, you know, for obvious historical reasons. But we're getting to a point where people, you know, want checks and balances on how law enforcement is watching its own people. And you know, we want transparency as well, because a lot of this is being done 
kind of in back rooms and in the dead of night. Um, so it was based on one that was adopted in Silicon Valley last year, and it would require NYPD to publish a use policy for each electronic surveillance platform that it uses or seeks to use in the future. And the policy has to include uh, an explanation of the applicable guidelines and potential requirements for court authorization, has to describe safeguards or security measures meant to protect unauthorized access of information gathered, um, has to specify data retention, access, use, dissemination of data, and has to include reports or tests about the technology's potential impact on health and safety. And, um, you know, my co-presenter, Richard uh, uh, Rashida Richardson, uh, noted that, you know, a good example of that is they, they, they have X-ray vans down in New York City where they can literally, they literally drive by and look into cars or into buildings potentially, but at the same time, they're exposing onlookers to wow <laughs> to x-ray radiation wow. so that's a perfectly good example of where you could be harmed and have no idea because of the lack of transparency and, and you know the thing that that makes this the most uh, uh heinous from my perspective is you're talking about this you're talking about the, the exposure to radiation there was a case uh, in this area recently, not related to privacy necessarily, but a, it was a, a guy that had gotten a hold of uh, the materials and, and information to try to build a, an X-ray generating device because of the fact that he wanted to harm people with it. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and this this sort of this sort of thing that that you could use the same type of radiation both to do harm and to do surveillance indicates that the surveillance itself as an active attack is potentially harmful. very harmful yeah <laughs> wow so uh right here in our backyard uh we're coming to you from again from albany new york uh, at the anycon convention but um this convention center is literally across the street from the capitol building where as I like to say, the people's business doesn't get done. <laughs> it's where the people's business comes to die. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so we're getting to the end of session here uh, in this Assembly and State Senate. And um, one of the bills that we've been working on, we've been assisting the New York Civil Liberties Union on, is the, the New York ECPA. That's the Electronic Communications Privacy Act. If you remember a few episodes back, we had Rashida Richardson on uh, to discuss that. And um, since then, we've actually gotten sponsors in both the Assembly and the State Senate, so that's good news. But we're trying to get to move it out of committee, and without getting too schoolhouse rock, basically, bills have to go through one or more many committees before they even make it to the floor of the two branches of government in the state here. Uh, but this bill is it, trying to update or bolster the 30-year-old federal act, which is also called the Electronic Communications Privacy Act. But as it's written and still standing, it's it, it's 
applying to technology as it was in the 1980s, which is, as we know, quite drastically different. We're yeah. Pretty much only in in regards to t- good old analog telephone communication. Largely, uh, yeah. Yeah. But if we get this update, uh, this would require law enforcement here in New York to get warrants for user data from third-party providers. And, you know, by that we're talking ISPs, email hosts, cloud providers. Because right now um, they don't need a warrant. They can uh, get it with much lesser uh, legal instruments such as subpoenas. And, again, this is, you know, an opportunity to rein in the third-party doctrine. Uh, you know, the nature of our quote-unquote papers, to borrow the language from the Fourth Amendment, is hmm. they, they don't necessarily physically manifest, and they're not necessarily uh, sitting right in your house, but they're still your thoughts, they're still your papers, and uh, just because uh, someone is hosting them, I don't feel should make it any different. Um, but... Um, the other thing is that, of course, one of the big problems in surveillance is the word mass. And we've seen a number of dragnets where, you know, not only do they go to a third-party uh, provider for user data, but it's not just for one user that they're interested in. They just get a whole bunch of data pertaining to many users. And that's just not in the spirit of the Fourth Amendment, or or American in my in my mind, so we've got another call to action that we're asking folks in New York, at least, to make. Uh, we we're hoping that we could get this moved out of committee and onto the floor before the end of session. So, if you want to uh, call, you know, these rep- state representatives, if you live here in the state. Um, Heasty, who's the chair of the Rules Committee, uh, Klein and Flanagan. And we'll have a a link on our website, privacypatriots.org, as well, directing their contact information. But uh, let's try to get this through. California already passed almost word for word this, this bill. And if we can get it going on the East Coast... I think we could set a really good precedent yeah, and I think, for our future. And I think unlike the last time when we found a bill that was word for word from California being repeated here in New York, unlike that time, this time we want this to happen. Well, it's actually time for our favorite segment. <laughs> Patriots and Pariahs. And uh, this is the first time we've actually had the honor of having our patriot before us to speak to. Uh, we have with us Mario Di Natale, uh, who gave a really good presentation at AnyCon. Whereas we pick on the government for all the bad legislation and policy they do, he just called them out because their security sucks. <laughs> so I, I thought that was an honorable thing to shed light on that aspect of it because that's where the rubber really meets the road I'd say so uh, what I gather that you're also kind of 
a hacker in the stereotypical sense that it, er, it came to you early. So thanks for joining us. Would you want to tell us a bit about how you got into hacking and then uh, a bit about how uh, our government sucks at cybersecurity? <laughs> sure. Okay, so um, first and foremost, let's... Uh, Let's preface this by saying the uh, the talk was meant to be a, a comedy and entertainment piece for the con. I'm glad you guys all enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does it does highlight and raise some some real issues um, about uh, the nature of the cybersecurity industry. Um, even though um, you know I covered the material in kind of a, a funny and, 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 and jesting way, and um, I. Uh, I think that you know, as, as much as the government does to intrude on our privacy, um, again, we can't necessarily uh, fault them for the way they go about it because they don't know any better. This is this is what in some sort of convoluted chain of thought they think is what's best for all of us, and they find some way to to skew um, you know their value system to. Uh, align with that with that goal, and in, in much the same way, um, the cybersecurity industry as a whole has really um, poisoned the well that is actual, you know, information security. In that, um, you know, the government is looking to the cybersecurity industry for guidance on how to how to do security properly, and um, the cybersecurity industry as a whole has really failed to provide a good framework to the government, to the private sector, to everyone, um, to the citizen populace as a whole, and how to do that. Um, So you would characterize them as well-intentioned but perhaps misguided? Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's absolutely fair. Um, And it's sad because there's a... um, a definite need for increased security and privacy for all of us. And these are all attainable goals, right? But um, it seems as though, you know, money and greed kind of got into the mix and um, has really gone a long way in perverting, I think, the, the original intentions of a lot of, uh, a lot of hackers. Uh, you know, there's, there's a saying, you know, you, you sold out. And, um, you know, I think, you know, this, the lure of Silicon Valley is so attractive. When you, when you flash Silicon Valley money in front of anybody, like, you're, you can't help but feel that greed. You can't feel that desire. So the cybersecurity industry was no different. You know, as soon as, you know, we had hackers that, that started um, espousing the goals of good security to, to the cybersecurity industry, Silicon Valley saw dollar signs, created marketing campaigns, and um, really went went full bore on, uh, on on marketing and monopolizing this whole industry. And now we have a lot of products that don't work and a lot of shady marketing that, that um, purports to do one thing and really does none of those things. Mm-hmm. So you care to talk a bit about, for lack of a better term, hacker culture. That's something that we focused on in our talk at Anycon because uh, we feel... You know, when we get together at a con- convention like this, it's it, 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 you really get a sense of community, and because of the effect that we're having on society and governments and what we do, uh, I, I'd almost say we're on the, at least on the cusp of being a movement. You know, what, what, 
what's your take or your feeling about hacker culture and it's there's a movement there? Ooh, you know, um, I used to think there was probably going to be a movement. I think um, you know, twenty six hundred probably tried to start one a long time ago, and I'm not so sure that 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 panned out. I think anonymous was well intentioned and, and had had a. Uh, some momentum going for it for a while. So, you know, there's these brief flashes in the pan of, of activism. Um, you know, I think back to like the, the 90s, like, web page defacement movement before it became like a something done for lulls, you know? It was, people had messages to spread. We were trying to free Kevin. Like, we, we, we found a polarizing issue that we got behind him. It was something that was important to us, and we started, we started um, using, you know, the, the our toolbox to, to, uh, to get the word out. I don't want to say that's dead, but again, I think the, the, the money in the industry has has corrupted the message. I don't, I personally, well, hacking will always be a hobby for me, it will always be a love. I'm never going to make money hacking. I'm never going to um, do any sort of, uh, sort of like, I'm not going to get into the security business, I'm not going to get into um, selling security products is nothing I, I really want to do. I I think that lets me stay, keep it pure and clean as a hobby. I'll talk. I'll, I never take money to talk either. I just like to address some of the issues that I see um, happening that uh, I didn't I didn't necessarily um, see happening when I got involved when I was like a, a youngin. You know, I I, uh, I still remember um, my first con was Beyond Hope, and it was still. That's when the Lost guys were still being, you know, um, hidden behind their, their pseudonyms because they were legitimately afraid of being sure, sued yeah. by corporations. Yeah. We were, like, I think we all were. This was before full disclosure. Um, some positive things have happened, you know. Um, there's there, we have like hackathons now, bug bounties, and, and hackers have. I mean, we have Mr. Robot has a TV show, and we've kind of come come into the limelight. It's not necessarily being these countercultural characters anymore. But I think until, you know, we actually take a look at the industry we've inseminated and take a look at the cybersecurity industry as a whole and realize that there's something really wrong and polluted about the messages it's, it's promoting and the people it's promoting, I think, are, are, are not in all cases, but there's a lot of poisonous people that we're promoting as, as kind of uh, our rock stars right now. Okay. I, think, I think until we... Pol- begin policing yeah, ourselves. Name, yeah, I'm not. I'm not going to name names. Until, Fair enough. Unless you catch me at the bar later. Okay. <laughs> but um, uh, I think that until we we figure out what our what, what the hacker ethos is going to be for this next millennia, yeah. and and we find uh, a way to, to stick to our ethos, you know, we're still going to be always being taken advantage of by the industry. Yeah. Now, when you talk, you shared your story, your kind of coming of age. You care to give us just like a Cliff Notes version of that? Sure, yeah. I was uh, I was just um, I was a kid that liked to play games, BBS games. Mm-hmm. Um, I, didn't, uh, I didn't socialize well. I was just a kid that stayed inside all day. And um, I just started, stumbled onto hacking just by you know, basically war dialing before I even knew what it was, what war dialing was, and then I started just thinking this was like a, a cool thing. Started playing around more, and uh, and then I started um, realizing what I was doing at a, a certain point. And I started making more and more friends, digital friends through uh, through the industry, and um, it's something that uh, you know I kind of 
I left for a little while to, you know, pursue, um, well, eventually I started liking girls when I was in college. I, was, I started talking to them. That was, that was a thing. I think that was, that was a I, paradigm I, shift. I needed, I needed to do that to, to, um, balance myself out. But, um, you know, then I got a job and I had kids and I took some time off from the industry and, um, I've kind of come back to it recently within the last few years again. And I noticed that, um, there's kind of really been a huge shift in, in the culture. There's certainly a lot more, a lot more people involved, but um, we really haven't created like a new version of the Mentors Manifesto. There really is no guiding manifesto for this next generation. It's and it's all over the place. And again, you see you see the the, the pollutant, the, the pollution that is the cybersecurity industry, kind of trickling down into the ocean that is the hacker culture and kind of yeah. they're kind know, of putting false uh, yeah, solutions out there the hackers are the fish that are eating all these bits of pollution right now and the younger the younger guys and gals don't really have anybody really telling them that this, there's another way like this, this it doesn't have to be um, uh, you don't have to become a marketing machine and build a brand character at an early age. It can be just about having fun and exploring systems. And mm-hmm. there's there's plenty of great like maker spaces that are coming out that that I I um, that I think are great. That's something I wish I had when I was a kid. I, I want to see more stuff like that. Um, an idea that uh, I just kicked around with my girlfriend Marisa here was we we thought about um, there's, there's certainly not enough women in the industry um, for sure. Marisa comes from a a hacker background herself, and um, we, we we were thinking about building maybe um, some sort of like you know, free of charge or all girls kind of like curriculum where, where girls don't necessarily have to feel like intimidated yeah. and they can they That'd can have, have their own safe space to play in. Yeah, you know, and I've been lucky enough like coming on to coming up that I've had enough interactions with women in the computer science industry. Like I had a number of professors, you know. Uh, it's unfortunate the ones that were there maybe don't get the the recognition or get over or shadow and you know like, like in our talk we talked about making this community more diverse and more inclusive especially on the note that when we talk about like with us we get into surveillance you have uh, marginalized communities that are the targets of surveillance so like they should be the ne- part of that next generation of who we get involved. So, and with that, I'll segue onto uh, one note. Last note is just that you know, I have, wonder if you have any comment on some of the legislation that we see out there. It's, you know, we're here in Albany, and, and we, we're kind of on the forefront of a, a lot of these bad political responses to encryption and other technologies. Yeah. Uh, you know, they tried to uh, pass an anti-encryption backdoor oh, bill. Oh. Yeah, here, yeah, yeah here in New York. And, uh, uh, I personally took that one and laid it alongside one that had been defeated in California. Yeah. And if you were to run a diff on them, you would maybe come back with five lines. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Short, an assemblyman wanted to make it illegal to sell any smartphone that couldn't be unlocked by the manufacturer. Illness. So, I mean, I'm just curious, what, what what's your reaction when you hear that kind of stuff going on? This is terrifying. This is, abs- this is really... Um, there isn't... Uh, a way, I mean, I'm not a person for marketing and hype and spin, but I don't know a more uh, succinct way of putting it. This is absolutely terrifying in like a, not, not, not like a Friday the 13th kind of way, like an Armageddon mm-hmm. kind of type situation where we, we're talking about nation state actors 
absolutely mandating by law that end-to-end encryption be made illegal. We they're they're basically sending their their citizenry a message that you are not entitled to any privacy whatsoever anymore. This is actual, true, big brother legislation being put in front of our faces in plain view, mm-hmm. and they are absolutely getting away with it right now. Like this is this is stuff that. It should cause revolutions, and I'm not saying that that's the right thing to do. I'm certainly not advocating it, but I mean, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, this is the sort of stuff that would have caused revolutions to occur. And I don't understand how people aren't aren't more um, like adamantly upset and, and reaching out to their to their Congress about what's what's going on right now. This is there's, this there's is actually terrifying. A, a remarkably interesting contrast to this. Uh, the European uh, Parliament just had a, a bill come out of committee that's going to be presented to the Parliament, and this bill actually mandates end-to-end encryption in electronic communications. Wow! So it's it's they're doing essentially the dead opposite of what's happening on this side of the pond, and I find that fascinating. Yeah, and it's also economically detrimental because. You're going to have customers rushing to firms over there for their products. Of course. Yeah. So, with that, uh, we can't have a, uh, a patriot without a pariah. So, well, I want to name this episode's pariah as Senator Tom Cotton, who we mentioned earlier in the show, uh, who this week made the proposal to extend Section 702 indefinitely. Uh, restoring the NSA's ability to suck up data from the back end, uh, the backbone, and um, and also effectively spy on Americans through a loophole. So, with and, that, um, I, yeah. well, while we're at it, we should also mention that uh, Tom Cotton was one of the me- many members of the Rogues Gallery who were pushing on Apple back in the time of the San Bernardino shooting ah. to. Unlock the iPhone. So definitely not a friend of definitely not a friend of privacy. Yeah. So with that, uh, uh, Mario Di Natale, thank you. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Senator Tom Cotton, redacted. Crypto is not a crime. So while we were here at AnyCon, we got to interview a a number of fine folks. Let's check out a, a couple of those interviews. Okay, we're here with Tyler Wrightson, who's the uh, host of AnyCon, as well as the CEO. I'll just go with founder. Founder. Founder of Lead Systems, who's putting on this convention. And so, so what inspired you to throw AnyCon? So, the real catalyst uh, for me personally was DerbyCon, which I went to year one, and they had such a phenomenal community vibe. Uh, we had a, a, just a just a great time there. It was very approachable. Everyone was super friendly, mm-hmm. and you know I tried conferences when I was younger, um, some of the more well known ones, and it just didn't fit me. I didn't really didn't really enjoy myself. And so finally, you know that was I think roughly six years ago, seven years ago. Went there, had a great time, and I was like, you know, this is definitely what we need in Albany. And so you know, fast forward probably five or six years, you know, finally found the opportunity to bring it to Albany, uh, that vibe at least, 
So that was the real real catalyst for me. So for the, those not familiar with DerbyCon, how would you characterize it? Is, is it a hacker or yeah. convention? Yeah, I would definitely categorize it as a as a hacker con. Yeah. But it's you know it's unique in its own own rights for sure. And where does that one occur? Louisville, Kentucky. Yeah. Yep. So. What, what are you trying to make happen here in the capital region by yeah. throwing this? Great. So, really what we're trying to accomplish is two things. Stick a flag in, in the ground in Albany and say Albany already has a great uh, cybersecurity community and great folks in the area. But we need to help inspire and, and grow that community and solidify it and demonstrate that Albany can be a cyber-centric city. Uh, and, and really just ultimately to have fun. You know, it was those two things combined. Yeah. I, I like having fun, so. For at least the last decade, there has been kind of this attempt to make Albany Tech Valley. Exactly. We've had that yep. uh, phrase bandied about, you know, to varying degrees of success. Yep. What, what, what do you foresee just for the tech industry and the, the hope of Albany fulfilling yeah. that idea of being Tech Valley. Do you, do, you, do you see that happening? So that's actually a great point because I had that conversation with a couple people uh, recently. And in the beginning, you know, I've, I've been in technology for uh, 17 years professionally. And uh, so I've seen the whole Tech Valley thing, you know, get, get pushed and kind of crammed down our throats without a whole lot of uh, real grassroots behind it. And I feel like after all this time, it's finally... Uh, really becoming a true tech valley, mm-hmm. and, and we have these these grassroots efforts that uh, that make it a legitimate place to find a, a job, find opportunity, and you know, and and just the communities again. You know, it's it's beyond just the professional piece. There are these great pockets of uh, people doing cool things within technology within Albany. So mm-hmm. I think we're starting to fulfill that that destiny. And, uh, and and looking forward to the future, I see some great things for us. You know, one of the things that I announced at the at the kickoff was an idea that we have uh, that we're really hoping to get some legitimate traction uh, this year on, which is the whole uh, cyber hub concept, which mm-hmm. is you know that that hacker maker space and educational hub that is not uh, uh, geared exclusively towards the professional, you know, but it can. Mm-hmm. Uh, can be a place where anyone can go to yeah. and learn about cybersecurity. Yeah. And you drop that phrase, which is kind of a buzzword in our circles, activist circles, grassroots. Mm. You know, what, what does that mean to you to have a grassroots community? To me, it just means folks that are in it uh, because they love it. Yeah. You know, to me, it's all about passion. You know, it, it's the folks that uh, don't have the traditional backgrounds, whether it's schooling or business but they just love this field there's plenty of folks like that and to yeah. me that that is quintessential grassroots yeah now we, we had the privilege of presenting here at AnyCon for restore the fourth yep. and we really one of the things we talked about what is the passion of this community and how we correlated that to some other communities and even political movements uh, one thing that I always contend is in this hacker community or I, what I consider to be a larger community than just hackers, we don't have a good name for it mm. yet, where you see shared interest, you see shared values that kind of connect with that. Yeah. Um, you know, I have my thoughts on what those are, but I mean, maybe you might want to share with us personally, like what, what, are, your, what are some of your values that come to you from 
being a hacker or being an infosec specialist? Yeah, cool. Well, well, first, before I answer that question, uh, I think that you answered your own question. You know, you said you couldn't come up with the word to describe at a more broad level that hacker mentality. And it's because I think hacker is the right word for the more broad, non-technical term. You know what I mean? I, I... a perfect example is, you know, Ron, who is serving coffee. I always refer to him as a coffee hacker. Okay. You know, he's not, ah. he's not technical in any way, but, <laughs> but he loves coffee. And, he, you know, he'll, he'll talk your ear off for days on end about all the yeah. intricacies of coffee and the unique things that he does. You know, I find folks in, in, in every field that yeah. are, that's non-technical at all. Huh. And, and, and I attribute that to them. And I say, if you have the, the, the passion and the nerdery, you know, the love for that, yeah. for, for diving into the, into the details and, and spending yeah. hours on end on that subject, to me, that, that's, that's hacker. Actually, now that, you've, uh, now that you've mentioned that, that makes a lot of sense. And if you look around in various places on the net where you find uh, various types of life pro tips, you'll very often hear them referred to as life hacks. And certainly, yeah. certainly there have always been enthusiastic... Um, I guess enthusiast communities arranged around various things, and the fact that the term hacker came out of the the computer and infosec field doesn't, I suppose, mean we need to keep it to ourselves. So, sure. Yeah. 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 You know, in in a way, sometimes I steer away from the word hacker uh, as a descriptor, just mm. because I know it, it tends to be a dirty word in a sense to mm-hmm. the rest of the world, but. You're almost inspiring me at this moment to say, <laughs> hey, maybe we should kind of 180 it and yeah. own it yeah. and say, hey, this is this is really who, who we are. Yeah. We're, diver- yeah. we're a really diverse group of people and, you know, uh, hacker well, real- is what we are. Yeah. Re- realistically, it wouldn't be the first case of somebody taking a pejorative and, and taking exactly. ownership yeah. of it. So. Exactly. Yeah. And so that's what's so funny yeah. about it is that, so, I, you know, my blog... Um, where I very post very sporadically, yeah. but the very first one I forget I think it might have been for like twenty, I don't know two thousand nine or so I don't know. Anyway, it's very old. It was just on that because there was so much banter and whatever forums I was on at the time about like hacker versus cracker and what does it mean and the media and how they ruined it. Yeah. It's like at the end of the 300 day, three hundred pound hackers <laughs> in their bedroom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. At the end of the day, I don't care. I use it how I want to use it, and yeah. I let other people use it how they want to use it. You yeah. know, there's a funny uh, thing I read recently about how two people can look at the same data and come to completely opposite conclusions. Sure. And I look at it at the same way as the word hacker. Yeah. I don't I don't care if you look at it differently. I'm going to use it how I use it. Yeah. And, you know, the fact that it's used in various ways, it's not the only word that's like that. That's just language in general, you mm-hmm. know? So, I mean... Uh, we're very focused in, uh, on the public policy and, and mm. government and uh, law enforcement legislation, how all that stuff ties into uh, the tech community and the hacker community. Um, you know, we, we were able to kind of hopefully bring some knowledge of that to an otherwise, uh, uh, otherwise group of people who are focused on on technology squarely, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, what are some concerns in society and in government that are on your radar just as mm. a citizen? So, you know, I, th- I think I have a, uh, a very narrow answer mm-hmm. for that question because my, 
my wheelhouse and my passion is is very focused. Yeah. You know, it's, it's focused on uh, the criminal element within hacking. Yeah. And so the things that concern me the most are around the real-world efficacious attacks that we have not seen yet. Mm-hmm. And so I know for a fact that there will be greater, far more impactful events that are uh, where the, the, the root issue is a, a purely cyber issue. And we're going to see that in America. And so those types of things concern me. Um, you know, the, the types of things that we've seen just in the past six months with, uh, you know, perfect example was uh, some, some MTA over on the West Coast was shut down for a couple of days from, yeah. from accepting payments. So it's like, you know, you, you, you do that in, in certain businesses and they're just going to shut down the business. You know, yeah. if, if, I, if you can't accept payments, like they're not going to run it for two days for free. Yeah. And so that to me is like, that's in- infrastructure being uh, so tied in. Huge. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So, so to be honest, those are, those are the types of things that, that concern me the most uh, because there, there's so much behind the scenes that, you know, what, not the least of which is uh, attributing those attacks to any particular entity. Yeah. You know, so those, those are the types of things that, uh, that consume a lot of my brain cycles. One, th- one thing that I said in my presentation, I actually called this community the fifth branch of government or, <laughs> or on the cusp of becoming that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, the fourth they, we always called journalists the fourth branch. Cool. Uh, kind of the one, the watchers watching yeah, yeah, the watchers. Yeah, but yeah. for various reasons, uh, journalism's kind of uh, isn't quite what it is anymore. And I feel like we're the ones kind of filling that void, mm. for better or worse. You know, in um, in in terms of you know, we see what WikiLeaks, how much mm. influence it's had. Exactly. Uh, you know, we were almost seeing a leak culture that's kind of come from that. Um, in, a, in a lot of ways, the technology industry is shaping the rest of society. Oh, that's absolutely. my opinion. Mm-hmm. But do, do you have any thoughts on that? Any? I mean, other than completely agreeing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's crazy. It's one of the things that we talk about uh, frequently is that if you really look back over the last hundred and last thousand years, okay. the the amount of technological innovation in the last twenty years is absurd. Yeah, and so going from what we had twenty, thirty, and again, you look back a hundred years, like telephone, when that was such a novelty that I can communicate with people across the state, and now in an instant we can have almost every piece of information at our fingertips. We can communicate with everyone, no matter where they are, in an instant. And we have this, you know, mini mainframe in our computer, in, in our pocket. Yeah. You know, what, what used to fill an entire room, this blows it out of the water. So, and that happened within the span of not even a generation, within the span of, like, a bathroom break. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> it's, it's absurd. It, 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 so, so the security issues that have been distributed to everyone on the planet it's yeah. like we don't even understand the full implications yet of that so, no crazy so what do you we'll leave off with you just asking you know what do you have uh in store or what do you hope for uh, in the future for this conference you know mm. i'm assuming uh we're gonna continue continue the con yeah of course yeah so but before we even, you know, had day one, we were planning on what year two would look like. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, we know that uh, to truly grow the community in this area, it's going to take time. 
mm-hmm. you know, and, and we're not doing the conference to make money. You know, we didn't make money this year. We don't we don't plan on uh, pocketing any money ever. We just want to grow the community. And so to do that, you know, it, it's going to take uh, many years. But so I, I, I look forward to uh, to next year, and I can see uh, solid growth because now we have materials that we can point people to and say, these are the types of talks we had, these types of people that showed up and contributed, this is what the community looked like. And I know it's just going going to snowball, and it's going to be phenomenal. All right, Tyler Wrightson of Lead Systems, thanks for uh, having us here, and uh, of thanks for taking the time to chat with us. Yeah. And uh, we wish you all, all the best luck in uh, making this an institution here in the awesome. capital region. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate you having me. Thanks. So we're here with another fellow podcaster, Doug White of Secure Digital Life. And can you tell us a bit about what you, what you get into on your podcast? Uh, well, we're, a, we're one of the channels on the Security Weekly Network, so securityweekly.com, uh, which has a lot, traditionally had a lot of very high-end uh, kind of hacking security type stuff on there with a lot of really famous people. And they did some studies found out that a lot of their viewers wanted more basic information to try to help people get introduced to cybersecurity, concepts of cybersecurity. Uh, so just in line with your podcast, you know, not how to hack encryption, but what is encryption. Mm-hmm. So uh, Secure Digital Life was an effort to try to bring more content to more people who are trying to start to understand this discipline and just want to be able to function. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's probably people that 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 would listen to your podcast and maybe maybe not able to follow it because you know there's a lot of complex technology or whatever in it. So we are trying to be the the sort of starting point for that to help people get into the discipline, help them to start getting ramped up on what they need to know, get familiar with the lexicon. And- Absolutely, I mean, I, the other day I was talking about what is SCADA. Uh, mm-hmm. We were getting all these media inquiries about what is SCADA? Can you come explain it on my news show? Can mm-hmm. you tell us how the Russians are going to hack the, the electrical grid? <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I was mostly trying to tell them that's probably not going to happen. But, but you know, well, I'm they not didn't... even familiar with SCADA. So oh. if you want to get, if you want to enlighten me. <laughs> Oh, well, yeah, I did a show on them on Wednesday. SCADA is, is a, a collection of usually programmable logic controllers and servo motors that are controlled by many computers, mainframe computers, that uh, are controlling mechanical operations like valves and switches and things like that. They're often these proprietary systems, so that a lot of them are really old, but they usually were proprietary systems that were contracted back in the 70s sometimes to manage uh, everything from HVAC, to uh, which is like heating and cooling kind of things in buildings, to uh, electrical grids in a city, to stoplights, to uh, the subway, to all these kind of things. So it's this very all-pervasive kind of thing that's out there, and a lot of people are trying to deal with it because there are holes in it because it's old. Yeah. Is that potentially what might have been in play when, uh, you know, we don't know who the Western actor was that uh, messed with the Iranian centrifuges? It's uh, it's exactly like Stuxnet was was in was a SCADA targeted piece of malware uh-huh. that was developed for the specific purpose of attacking these SCADA controlled centrifuges and and that's exactly what that is. So that that Stuxnet virus was very much like this. Nice. Well, depending which side of the of the story you're on. Well, if you're in the cybersecurity field, it's like, yeah, cool. It's a cool piece of malware. I'd like to have a copy of it. And you can get it on you can get it on the web now, but uh, 
But again, you know, one thing to just caution everybody about before they get too worried about these things is just like Stuxnet, these are very targeted kinds of attacks. Yeah. And they don't, they're not very easy to make generic. So taking a, a SCADA attack and making it generic enough to apply to, say, even just across a state yeah. is very, very difficult. Because right here in New York, there are probably multiple local power companies, even if they're all under the, the name of one big power company, and they all have different SCADA systems and different switching systems that have been implemented everywhere from, like, the 1930s all the way up to last week. So you get a really broad spectrum of stuff there making attacking on a big scale pretty difficult. That doesn't mean you can't attack on a small scale. So one thing I think our two podcasts might have in common would be hacker culture, for back, okay. lack of a better word. I, you know, I feel the culture is expanding beyond just hackers. But, uh, uh, you know, wh- what's your take on what I perceive to be a community and when you mix politics into it, even potentially a movement that's happening? Well, I mean, there's always. I mean, I've been involved in this since since it existed, essentially. So, I mean, I, I started working in this field in 1977, and the early stuff in hacking was really just a community of people that were mostly cooperating because we didn't have any other choice. There was no such thing as the internet in the 80s. Mm-hmm. So, if you were, I was a sysop on a university machine. You know, I had a list of phone numbers of people that worked on those same kinds of machines that was given to me by the mainframe manufacturer. So, you know, DEC gave me a list of people that used DEC 10s. Mm-hmm. And I would call these people and say, hey, I'm the sys up here. You're the sys up there. Could you just give me some, you know, I don't, we're getting an error message. We have no idea what it means. Can you, have you ever seen it? And the guy was like, no, call this guy. He, he's at, you know, this, this other university. Give him a ring. He may know. Yeah. And you call the guy and he would go, oh, yeah, I know what that is. He was like, here's what you do. And he's like, it means that this thing is doing this. And I think that community was sort of what I called the tech community back then. The hacker community kind of grew out of that. Yeah. Because literally back then, you know, we had all kinds of students who were trying to attack attack resources in our networks. So on the mainframe, we had we had students who were trying to attack other students, students who were trying to play pranks on other students. And, and at the time, none of this was perceived as anything above the, the radar, it was not something for average citizens to be involved in. So it was considered games among experts. And that means that if a student attacked another student, and I saw it, I would just squash them. And I had my own malware that I had written that would attack their accounts. It would do all kinds of bad things to them and play all kinds of really nasty pranks on them that basically ended with, don't do that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it, it was kind of, it was fun because, it, you know, the sysop was, was essentially the voice of God. So when that, me- you know, and, and one of the most fun things I ever got to do was to type messages on people's screens from the sysop console <laughs> that says, stop doing that. <laughs> you know, and, and the person sees this, like, message pop up from, like, root. You know, and they're like, it wasn't rude, but it was the same idea. System. And they're like, oh, maybe I better quit what I'm doing. Like, I'm watching you, and I'd really like you to stop. And if you don't, I'm going to do something bad to you. And it was really easy when you're rude. But uh, I think the hacker culture kind of emerged out of that mentality. So, and, and there's two pieces of it, too. There, there's, there's the look. Yeah. You know, so that's the sort of 
I wear a long leather duster and you know and have yeah. a mohawk or a dark hoodie or or well yeah that's that's a more serious look but you know I've got like a three thousand dollar I've been to Def kind of seen a guy in like a three thousand dollar leather duster he bought on Rodeo Drive with yeah. like a haircut that cost more than I made this month so was uh, propeller heads playing when he walked in in <laughs> slow mo <laughs> <laughs> yeah that that kind of thing but that guy probably couldn't write a piece of C code to save his life. Um, <laughs> You know, he said somebody that, that thinks, you know, clicking on execute on InMap is like a complex task. Um, and, and there was still that te- that underlying tech community, you know, of people that really do have that expertise. And, and you see those guys on, like, Security Weekly, like Paul and Larry and all these people that are on there. Uh, and, you know, like Jeff Mann standing down there. And, and these, are the, these are the people that, that often look like professors, you know, and, and they're the people that really have this underlying schema that are still kind of operating in that environment. But there's a definite mentality to it. You know, it often ends with, you know, drinks and shot glasses and things like that. <laughs> now, what you described from the old days, you know, that was kind of occurring inside of this very small ecosystem. And, you know, one thing we argued in our presentation yesterday was that, uh, you know, what hackers and the tech community are doing overall is really to... Uh, directing the course of society as a whole. And all of this now applies to the world at large. And what has that been like to see that paradigm shift where we're not just hacking other students, we're affecting elections, we're uh, uh, overcoming oppressive regimes and things like that? Well, I mean, I, it was bad. I mean, there was a time when this was our little club. And when I had uh, I had my own mini computer in my basement that was managing you know games and bulletin boards for other people around the world, and there was you know fifteen hundred people using these like systems, and they were all players. And if you know they played a prank on you, you played a prank on them. Everything's cool. If they got out of hand, you squash them, or you don't. You know, I mean, but that was an old old idea. When they let it, when they opened the doors and let everybody else in, that was when I started perceiving it in a different way. Because to me, harassing a guy named Spock in Australia, who is an electrical engineer, I know who you are if you're listening, um, <laughs> you know, back in like 1985, is very, very different from harassing some 60-year-old person who is trying to look at their family photos and that are incapable of defending themselves. And when, when it changed beyond that, it became a public resource rather than a private club. And so, all of a sudden, that was really what... I had this, like, epiphany of, of awareness when I suddenly realized people could be harmed by this. Because, like I say, when it was a bunch of engineers playing dorky games in the basement, harm meant you got to learn something. Yes. Somebody took me out. I get to learn something today. I'm going to swear about it a lot because I'm down. But I, I You sunk my battleship. Exactly. <laughs> but all of a sudden, it went way, way beyond that. And that was just in the initial round where the paradigm shift was, let's include all these civilians in this game. And I worried about that a lot because I saw people, you know, like, like my dad or, or, or somebody like that who's not that technologically astute. And they were suddenly being accosted by con men from around the world mm. who could target them using all kinds of uh, endlessly available resources with absolutely no way to catch them ever. There's no way, even if I know exactly who you are, Spock. Uh, <laughs> unless I can go convince this, this, the State Department to go after him. There's, you know, and they're not going to do that. Yeah. So, and, and then, so now, 
we've been working. I, I'm, I'm involved with the Joint Cyber Task Force in Rhode Island, which is a, a collection of civilians, military, law enforcement that work together to be available in times of trouble okay. to try to provide civilian resources or military resources or law enforcement resources to a business, a state agency, an entity that is desperate because of a hurricane, because of a death, because of some kind of heinous thing that went on. Because it's such a great thing to be able to help if a small company or a big company or an agency it's wiped out because their two IT people go out to lunch and never come back. Yeah. I mean, I actually did a consulting job like that once where their two IT people went to lunch, got in a car accident, and didn't come back. And wow. that was it. And they're sitting there going, we don't know what to do because they control everything. Yeah. And I was like, don't let them go to lunch at the same time in the future. <laughs> but, but the truth is, is that... Uh, Creating those kind of resources meant that when, say, the, the, the Department of Works or something gets hosed by, I don't know, an asteroid strike. Yeah. And they say, we're totally fried. It, we thought it was such a great idea to be able to bring together all these people that exist in our, our environment and have them vetted, know who they are, uh, you know, and, and we trust them because we know them. We have regular meetings so people know each other. So I know that right now I can pick up my cell phone and I can call a captain of state police, I mean a captain of state police, and say, hey, John, what do you think? And yeah. John, John's going to take my call because he knows who I am. He knows he can trust me. He knows he can talk to me, and I'm not going to turn around, and I'm not going to you know, give it. And, and we get all kinds of customers in the state, from its businesses, its corporate, its schools. Those people can call in and get help when they need it because they may not have the resources they need. Sometimes it's not even a matter of people got hit by an asteroid. It's a matter of they just don't have that resource. And you have a great amount of skill at something. You know, yeah. you're you're a radio operator. You know how to do this. You know how to do that. And we've vetted you, and we've got a list of skills. And I can and they can call the they can call me and say, Doug, do you know somebody who can work on a on a on a vax? We've got one. And I go, <laughs> me? Yeah. Like I'm, I'm here. Like wow, I've been waiting for this call for like 30 years. But or since the Y2K then. incident. At least. Exactly. And when <laughs> and we saw that. But what that meant to us was that all of a sudden this got even worse. Yeah. Because all of a sudden I started getting calls from people with stars on their shoulders. Wow. Saying, um, what do you think about this? Hmm. And I started realizing that what if a nation state took their resources, whether it was good guys, bad guys, or gray guys, which I would tend to say all of them are gray guys, and decided, let's go after someone. Let's take them out. And I thought, we're a target. And we started getting those kind of questions, and I realized that this was more than just a, a game. It had progressed. The paradigm shift had gone all the way to the other end of the spectrum to where we stopped being a bunch of dorks in the basement fooling around, changing the headers on people's print, to you know, to the fact that could a nation state attack us? Could they do something heinous to us, like turn all the stoplights green in, in Manhattan mm-hmm. you know, this afternoon? Or just, I mean, even just something that was a prank like that could cause loss of life. It could cause millions and millions of dollars of property damage. Mm-hmm. And, and how much of an impact that was going to have on the day-to-day lives of people who don't even know what the Internet really is other than this thing they click on and funny cat pictures come up. Yeah. Well, you've, you've kind of led up to my next question, which is do you, do you feel that we've, we've connected too much infrastructure to the Internet? And then I have an expansion of that question. Okay. Um, I, 
I, I don't really. I, I mean, I think we just need to do a better job of protecting it. The, okay. the ability of Internet of Things, I mean, I know you guys are your privacy guys, so you and I are kind of on a little slightly different, you know, like perspective because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not as much of a privacy person. Mm-hmm. I mean, I get it. Don't, don't get me wrong. I, I, I don't disagree with you. I just also don't care that much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, if you want to track me, I'm the most boring person on earth. You know, your RFID tag you embedded under my skin is going to show me sitting in a chair 12 hours a day. And it's like, oops, looks, he moved. He moved. Oh, my God, he moved. You know, and it's like that'll be the big shocker for the NSA to find out. But so, I mean, I think the world is so facilitated. I mean, just in a pure sense. So just in a theoretical. All right. So just for a second, let's just leave all the bad guys out of it. In a pure sense, if you could embed medical software in my body to track me when my blood pressure goes too high and call 911, you know, 10 minutes before I'm about to have a heart attack, wouldn't that be awesome? Mm. I mean, just just take the whole, you know, bad guys out of it for a second mm-hmm. and just say, wouldn't that be great that, that, like, your Uncle Vic didn't didn't die from that heart attack because the alarm went off? Sure. And it didn't just go off because he was down in the closet by himself. It went off. And an ambulance came mm-hmm. because he had embedded software. Now, I know there's bad guys, and then, then people start talking about, well, what if somebody hacked Uncle Vic and they <laughs> turned his heart off like as a joke, you know, as a piece of malware that causes your heart to beat like to the rhythm of a song and drives you insane. <laughs> I mean, all those things are scary to me in that context. But when we start talking about being able to answer the door at our house from my phone over there, like my house, yeah. is, my, my house is 300 miles away, I, and the doorbell rings, and I go, wow, who's this guy at, at my front door? And I go, hey, what do you want? And the guy goes, oh, somebody's home. Yeah, thanks. Maybe I'm going to move on. I, I, I love that idea because I love technology. Mm-hmm. I would love to be surrounded by a, a swarm of little drones that do my bidding. You know, they're just sort of floating around my head. And when somebody threatens me, my drones all sort of line up and sort of give them the dirty eye. You know, they give them a dirty look. Because I was like, can you, and this is my product. If you want to take this product, you have to give me a donation. So you want to steal it. If you're listening out there, I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to share it with you. This is my startup idea. I'm hijacking these guys' podcast. What if you could sell to parents a little drone swarm that went around their kids so that if something threatened them, a bully, bad guys, the drones all kind of line up and go, and people are like, ooh, the drones are getting mad. It's time to back off. To back off. So if you do that, you make me a donation. I'm sorry. I know you want to say something. No, but you heard it first. <laughs> you heard it first. <laughs> well, you had an expansion you wanted to Yeah. Yeah, well, since you're just because you're, you come from the vintage days and we're talking about all... Uh, all of this infrastructure that's interconnected now. I always want, it's just kind of a thought of an experiment. I always wondered if the Y2K problem cropped up now with the state of interconnected infrastructure that has developed in the last 17 years, if it happened now, would it have been, would it be the crisis that they imagined was going to happen then? Well, that's a very good question. And I, I will say that one thing. I, I I'm not much. I'm a pretty cynical person, really. I mean, a lot of, like a lot of security people, and and I'm pretty good at being paranoid when I want to be because I did a lot of disaster planning for people. So mm-hmm. I have to think about what if that escalator falls? You know, yeah. How many die? But um, the, it, I, I like to think that just like Y2K, what we saw happen with that because Peter Jordan started talking about the end of the world. I, I, I you know and. When Peter Jordan started talking about the end of the world, people got very worked up. And I was on a news program. They came over, they sent a crew, and they wanted me to talk about an airplane crashing. Like, how could that happen? 
And I kept saying, no, there's a pilot there. The pilot would just disable the autopilot and land the aircraft. And they were like, yeah, but couldn't it crash anyway? Like, couldn't the computer force it to crash? And I'm like, this is nuts. And they didn't air the segment because they wanted me to talk about the hysteria. Ah, yeah. I like to think that just like in Y2K, if even with the Internet of Things today, everything being enabled, that we would rise to the occasion and find a way to solve it without it being the end of the world. I mean, is it a threat? Absolutely it's a threat because so many things are IoT, so many things are enabled, and if we get more down that road, now my pacemaker, my my body monitoring system, my little drone swarm is all managed by my personal internet and intranet. And that kind of a shutdown does start to become a threat. There's a threat in information. Uh, we saw that with Hurricane Sandy. Uh, I knew people that lived in Queens. The police were driving through neighborhoods going, please go to the following website, www. <laughs> and, you know, the people are going to the website, and the website is down because the server crashed. It was never intended to handle that kind of a load. Yeah. And I think we're probably, like, a few years right now without paradigm shift away from people just reaching an absolute state of panic when their phones stop. We've been talking about that in our disaster planning for the state with emergency management to the point where what happens when you can't get to Google Maps? Yeah. What happens when, you know, you can't, when you're typing in, there's an asteroid about to hit my house, what should I do? And you're still standing there trying to get, you know, a response, refresh, refresh. We're getting there, and that's a scary place, but I also think that there's a paradigm shift that can be painful. And that when it happens, hopefully we will rise to the occasion. We will find new new schema that help us to deal with these kind of things and resolve them. And just like we've always done, I think we will find a way through that wilderness, I hope. So from talking to you, you seem to me, for lack of a better term, kind of a self-defensive type, you know, with your idea of, of drones that will kind of protect you and kind of just creating s- solutions for yourself. Um when it comes to people that, you know, if we go back to our forte, people that want to protect their privacy from government entities or in other parts of the world's really repressive regimes, like, what, what's your, what advice do you give to, like, average people or average users of, you know, where, where is, we're attacking things actually in, on, with legislation and things like that. What can you do it by your own hand to protect your privacy from? Well, for, well, first of all, most people say I'm offensive, but I'll I'll, I'll go with your self-defensive uh, analogy there. Mm-hmm. No, um, I guess that's, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, well, I mean, if you want to protect your personal information, I mean, one is always be aware of your personal information. I mean, it always comes back to this walking down the street with a with a bag in your hands. You know, if if you walk down the street with a bag with money sticking out of it. Uh, you're the highest profile target on the street. Somebody's going to swoop over there, and, and, you know, even somebody who might otherwise not be thinking about committing a crime that day goes, wow, a giant bag of money walking down the street. You know, the guy's, <laughs> the guy's you know, got a headphones on and, you know, just dawdling along. And, you know, somebody just swoops over and grabs it away from you. Um, so, obviously, being aware of, to me, what your information is, is a very critical thing. I mean, what is your information that you need to protect? Because you're never going to protect everything, ever. It's True. impossible. So there's, but, but and we learned that it's just like trying to encrypt everything. You know, there was an early part of the internet when they were saying, "Well, you got to encrypt all these websites," and so people were trying to encrypt all these websites, right? And it's like, oh wow, this is crazy. 
the, the overhead is ridiculous. And basically what we're doing is we're encrypting and unencrypting this photograph that's static on the page for all people to see. Okay, maybe we don't need to encrypt that part. So why don't we just use HTTPS on these, these naughty bits that everybody wants and leave all this static crap that's just public consumption out there and don't worry about it because it's laying out. So I think, I think, first of all, you have to sit down and sort of self-assess what is it about me that I need to protect? Is it my personal information, my bank account numbers? Is it is it the, the IP address of my pacemaker that you're wanting to mess with? <laughs> and, I mean, all these things can be threats, but they can also sometimes be not so threatening at all. Uh, so, so that's the first thing you've got to do. And then, obviously, the step beyond that is know your encryption and know it well because you do need to encrypt your data. Uh, you need to protect it, but you have to be super, super careful that you don't over-encrypt. Mm. Because I get calls from people saying, okay, so here's what I did. All right, I, I, I was trying to protect all my family photos from like, people stealing them. And you're like, uh-huh. Okay, well, here's what I did. I, I went online and I downloaded this stuff that's called like Never Break Super High Flux encryption it's like guaranteed that it's using like neutrino feeds from like ancient stars to like generate random strings that are like eight gigabits long and they said that it could never be broken in the expected lifespan of the universe uh-huh i lost the password to that and i i was wondering if you could maybe break it like yes let me use my superpowers and get your data back for you well, well, really, what it, what this comes down to is it's essentially the same problem that we have uh, that kind of got us kicked off in the first place is um, that we were trying to deal with the, the mandate that there be backdoors put into encryption. And uh, one of the fundamental things that people don't realize is once you have encrypted the data, it's on you to make sure you keep the stuff that is necessary to decrypt it because it's it's that scrambled. Yep. You're not getting it back if you did it right. Um, and, <laughs> and neither is anybody else. And, and neither is anyone point. else, including the NSA. I had a guy call me once and ask if I knew anyone at the NSA I could call. I was like, well, I kind of know some people, but they, they can't break that either. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, I mean, you have, but I, I think the key there is, is two things. Is one is knowing what you need to protect because that's the first thing. Don't just try to protect everything all the time. It's ridiculous. And, you know, it, it, it's like saying I have to have like, a, like 50 people with shotguns protecting every square inch of my property day and night, you know, even though I live in the East Bay of Rhode Island where crime is like almost non-existent. But, you know, hey, I'm going to protect that, that blade of grass over there. You know, somebody looks at it funny and they're going down. Mm. That's what my drone swarm is going to do, though. Um, <laughs> like you look at my yard funny, you're going to hear that buzzing start. And yeah. it's like, yeah. Um, but, um, but I also think that when you do encrypt, you need to, you need to have a plan. And all too often people jump on like PGP or something like that and they download these tools and they encrypt the hell out of everything they're doing. And the next thing they know, they go, oh, I made a giant passphrase that I thought was so, so clever at the time. And I have no idea what it was. It, it will probably not surprise you in the least to hear that I've been through this with my kid. <laughs> yeah, every, everybody's been through this at some point in time, and, and it's a dire thing. So I, I think we need encryption. I think we need to use VPNs. I think we need to protect ourselves. But we have to be careful that we don't get too carried away and overdo it. Mm. So I'm definitely going to be putting your podcast in my aggregator alongside Privacy Patriots. Do you want to give a little plug? For, for mine? Yeah. Oh, sure. My podcast is called securedigitallife.com. 
Uh, it's on securityweekly.com uh, network. So there's a, we have seven podcasts on Security Weekly that range everywhere from basic intro stuff like mine all the way up through Tradecraft, which is about how to actually break into things and do these kind of things. And you want to dissect malware, they're doing it. So, yeah, be sure and check that out. I'll be sure and put you guys on my uh, on my podcast list, too, because I like to listen to podcasts about interesting things, and this looks pretty interesting. Mm. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, Doug White, and uh, enjoy the rest of the con. You guys, too. Thanks so much for having me. So that about wraps things up. We hope you enjoyed Episode 7 of Privacy Patriots, the official podcast of Restore the Fourth. Thanks for listening, and we hope to have you join us for the next episode. Head over to www.privacypatriots.org, where you can get further connected with us on Reddit, Twitter, and Facebook. In the meantime, keep watching The Watchers, and stay tuned as we give you the information that you need to keep your information your own.